0: Bibles, this morning, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number sixteen. Let me say just a few words before I read our text for the morning. Were I to take a survey, asking what is the worst sin in the world? I would get a lot of different answers. Most of them would be wrong. What would you say? I mean, we can all think of some absolutely horrible, terrible things. We can think about those that literally have burned the flesh of their own children in sacrifice to false gods. We can think of those that have fed their children to the waiting crocodiles in the Ganges River. We can think about the horrible sin that we've seen recently of those being beheaded. We can think about the torture and the rape and all of the other sins that could be named. But what would you say? Well, Actually, the answer is very easy. If the first and great commandment is that we love the Lord our God, then the worst sin is failing to do so. I mean, this is the sin out of which all of the other sins are born. It's the root of the problem, the very heart of the matter. It was this sin, by the way, that caused Jesus Christ to be crucified. The Bible says that he was hated without a cause. And as you know, he was murdered without any mercy. And if you don't love God, you are just as guilty as those who drove the nails and pierced his side and crucified him. Last week I concluded my message with a verse from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 that says, Whom having not seen, ye love. Today we're going to look at the opposite of that and speak about those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul closes out his letter to the church at Corinth, he says in verse number 22 of chapter 16, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema and maranatha. The title of the message is The Worst Sin. You'll remember that Jesus inquired of Peter, Lovest thou me? That's the question that each and every one of us must answer. When Paul closes out this letter, you'll notice that he does so with words of tear and words of tenderness. In the letter, he described their situation. He denounced their sins. He discussed the solution But here, as he closes the letter, he digs down deep to the very source of the problem, the root of all of man's problems, which is a lack of love for the Lord. And he tells them, as you'll see shortly, that they must be either devoted or destroyed, one of the two. You see, every religion has certain characteristics that distinguishes it from all of the others. But when we come to Christianity, there's something about it that sets it apart from all of the other religions in the world. You see, Christianity is based upon what God does for us rather than what we do for Him. Christianity is centered upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based on our faith in and our love for Jesus Christ who saves us by His grace. And here we see this very apparent in our text this morning. I want you to notice three things, starting with the sin. Notice the sin that is identified here. He says, love those that love not the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we might be surprised who all is on that list because it's easy for us to deceive one another. You know, we can get up in the morning and fix ourselves up and put on our Sunday-go-to-meeting clothes, and we can march off to church and, you know, have a good attitude, put a smile on our face, carry a Bible in our hand, say all of the right things, might even sing, you know, as the choir sings along and uh, do all of those things that would leave the impression that here is a person that really loves the Lord when the truth of the matter is they don't. And naturally there are others that make no claims whatsoever. They refuse to honor His name. They refuse to obey His laws. They refuse to keep His commandments. They refuse to sing His praise. They make no claims. It's obvious for everyone to see they do not love God, and they don't care who knows it. But the fact of the matter is, It doesn't make any difference which group you're in because you are just as bad off as those that make no claims if your profession is a false profession. So the question is, do you love the Lord? But in order to answer that question, we've got to understand what love is. What does it mean to love Christ? Well, maybe the best way to answer that is to let Christ answer for us because we always get the truth when it comes from Him. Whenever He lays down the stipulations for discipleship, when He gives the demands for discipleship, for example, in Luke chapter number 14, He mentions three things that stands out that's an evidence that we are indeed His followers, that we do truly love Him. And the first one is unrivaled love. He tells us that if we, you know, love our mother, our father, a son, a daughter, if we love anyone more than him, we cannot be his disciple. Now, understand, he's not saying that we shouldn't love others. That's not the point. In fact, he even... in. In, 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 by way of emphasizing how strong he felt about this, he says, if you hate not your mother and father. Now he's speaking in relative terms because the same Bible that commands us to love them says that our love for them in comparison to our love for Christ or to be as though, putting it in everyday human language, it would be like we hated them because we love Him so much more. So if we love Him, our love is going to be unrivaled. In other words, we'll not love anyone or anything else more than we love the Lord. But in verse 27 of that chapter, He tells us the second thing, not only will there be unrivaled love, but there will be unceasing cross-bearing. That is, that we'll take up our cross daily and we'll follow Him. You see, this business of Christianity is not something that we do just on Sunday. That's no evidence of love whatsoever. I remember growing up, and and, uh, you know, back then I didn't go to church, didn't know anything about church whatsoever, but... But my buddy, one of my buddies, uh, he was a Catholic. And I'm not trying to put them down other than to say they're just wrong. But anyway, we would go out and, you know, party hardy and just, I mean, booze it up all night long. And uh, he'd say, but you've got to drop me off over at the church because I've got to be there for early Mass. I had no idea what early Mass was. I thought maybe they had a breakfast there or something like that. But, you know, later I learned that, you know, after he had sinned all night, he could run over there and confess his sins and get forgiveness of his sins. And, you know, that, that just made everything all right. You know, as an unsafe person, that sounded like a pretty good deal to me, Huh? I mean, just go sin all you want to and then go over there and hide in a closet somewhere and confess to some fellow with his collar on backwards that you've sinned and now everything's okay. But that doesn't make it okay. Jesus said we have to take our cross daily and follow Him. So there's unrivaled love, there's unceasing cross-bearing, but there's also an unqualified renunciation because in verse number 33, he says, unless a man forsakes all he has, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, there cannot be any rivals. We have to be willing to forsake everything we've got. That doesn't mean that you drain your bank account and give it all to the church. That doesn't mean that you get rid of all of the luxury items that you might have. It doesn't mean that you deprive yourself of your daily necessities. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a willingness to do so if He requires it. That we've got to be at that place in our life that we love the Lord so much that, that if that is what He demands, that we'll be willing to relinquish control of it and give it over to Him. So that's what it means to love the Lord. We could describe it in a hundred other ways, I suppose, but that describes it in the terms of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, that raises another question then. If that's what love is, the question becomes, why should we love Him? Why? There's got to be a reason for it. and In fact, there are several. Number one, we love Him because He demands it. He demands it. That's the first and the great commandment, right? So He is demanding that we love Him. You know, that's that, that's the very reason why God made us with a with free wills. You know, a lot of people wonder, well, why is it that God would allow sin to enter into the world? Why is it that God permits people to do what they do? because that's the only way that we could ever love God. Love for God has to come out of, out of our free will. In, in other words, it, it can't be that God forces us to do it. That wouldn't be real love, right? So God gives us a free will, and we can love Him, or we can hate Him, we can receive Him, or we can reject Him. And God demands that we love Him. Now, it's one thing for God to demand that we love Him, but it's another thing to make this next statement. We ought to love Him not only because He demands it, but because He deserves it. You know, we can put certain demands upon one another, but just because, you know, I demand you to do something doesn't mean that I deserve your response. But when we're talking about God, the One who loves us unconditionally, the One who gave His own Son to die on the cross at Calvary, you can come to no other conclusion other than the fact that God deserves what He demands because He died for us. So He demands it and He deserves it, but then also He desires it. You know, it's one thing for God to demand that we love Him. It's another thing for that to be the very thing that is pleasing to the heart of God. God desires that you love Him. You know, we talk about living to please the Lord. That, that, that ought to be our agenda. That ought to be our motivation in life. That we live to please the Lord. That's what Paul said in, in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ. And that's why we ought to feel about it. To live is Christ, that we want to not only imitate Him in what we do, but we want to please Him in all that we do. And it delights the heart of God when we love Him. You see, if we don't love Him, we could give every penny we've got, and God would not be impressed. That doesn't delight the heart of God. We can travel the world doing good for others. And yet that would not please God if we don't love Him. And so God demands it, God deserves it, God delights in it. But then the problem is the want or the lack of love for God, and it's obvious with most people, it's obvious because of their rebellion against the highest authority. Think about it. God is demanding that you love Him, and God is the highest authority in all of the universe. You do things for the government that you wouldn't do for anybody else. Why? Because they, have a high, they are a higher power than those other people, right? Suppose your next door neighbor said, You know, I've just decided I think it would be a good idea if you pay me about 20% of your income as taxes every year. What would be your response? <laughs> well, you certainly wouldn't say, Well, give me a form and I'll fill it out and I'll send it in. Now, you wouldn't pay any attention to him, right? He has no authority. But when Uncle Sam says, you're going to pay me a certain percentage of your income for taxes every year, then you'll listen to the government, whereas you wouldn't listen to your neighbor. Well, I want you to know there is a power and authority that is higher than the government. The greatest authority in all of the universe is God. And whenever we refuse to love God, we are rebelling against the highest authority in the universe. Not only that, but it shows contempt for the holiest person. We sang a while ago, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And to refuse to love Him the one who is altogether lovely, the one who is perfect in all of his ways, the fairest of 10,000, to refuse to love him shows contempt for his holiness. And then it shows ingratitude for the, for the greatest benefactor. When you stop and think about that God loved us and gave himself for us. Amen? He, he gave himself. He, he didn't send another. He gave himself for us. And think about us refusing to love the one who made the greatest gift possible. Amen? Amen? And it's easy for us to see how serious this sin is. And Paul is writing here about those who refuse to love the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the sin, and that's as serious as it gets. Now, notice the sentence that he mentions. He says here in our text, let him be a That word simply means an offering. It means a thing that is dedicated to or set aside as a sacrifice to be slain. In other words, it's speaking about something that has been accursed, something that is devoted to destruction. For example, in the Old Testament, whenever they would get ready to worship God, they would take a lamb and they would set it aside. And it was to be examined. It was supposed to be a male of the first year without spot and without blemish. And they would set it aside and examine it. And that lamb was what we would call sanctified, set apart, designated for the purpose of being a sacrifice. So whenever Paul speaks about the punishment for the sin of not loving God, he uses this word that speaks about something that is accursed, something that is about to be sacrificed or destroyed. Now when you read this, automatically you begin to think, you know, this seems so out of character for the Apostle Paul. Because after all, here is a here is a man that was loving and kind, here is a man that was considerate of other people, and, and seems to be a very caring person, and all of a sudden he says if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, he said the person like that is to be anathema. In other words, that they're to be cursed a curse devoted to destruction. How do we explain that Paul could do something so much out of character for him? You know, a lot of people, they want all of the preaching to be real easy, something that will tickle their ears, something that will not offend their senses, something that, you know, that will be fun and thrilling and exciting. And, And all of a sudden, Paul steps on the platform and says, if you don't love the Lord, you can go to hell. That's about as blunt as you can get. But the reason Paul wrote that is because the Spirit of God inspired him to do so. So, look, whenever Paul says this, folks, it's not his wish or his desire. That's not the point. This is a declaration or a prediction that he is making. And it's a prediction that is based on the truth of God's Word because it's exactly as it ought to be. Maybe you're thinking, I just don't understand how a God of love could send anybody to hell. Well, that's because you don't understand the greatness of God's holiness. You don't understand the awfulness of your sin. You don't understand what a great, tragic, horrible, terrible thing it is for you to sin against God. We can't comprehend that. Whenever we think about Calvary and the suffering that Jesus went through, and remember, here is a man that has never done any wrong whatsoever. Here is a man that's perfect in all of his ways, and yet he hangs there on that cross, suffering, bleeding, dying, not for anything that he's done, but because of our sins. And we have to wonder to ourselves, how can it be that a God of love would subject His own Son to suffering like that? Well, it's because He is a God of love. It's because God knows that this is the only way in order to deliver us from His wrath. You see, when we talk about God being holy, we're not just talking about God being a God of love. We have to understand that He is a just God also. And that's why the Bible says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. In other words, don't just put all of your focus on the fact that God is a God of love, but God is a holy God, and because of that, God is a just God, and sin must be punished. God wouldn't be a perfect God. He wouldn't be a just God if He just arbitrarily decided, well, you know, I've just decided I love you so much, I'm just going to ignore your sins. I'm going to pretend like it never happened. I'm going to let you come into my heaven. He'd be an unjust God because sin has to be punished, and it will be punished either in the person of Christ or you will have to pay that debt Yourself. And that's for all of eternity, folks. So when he talks about this judgment, this penalty, this punishment for those that love not the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that's exactly as it ought to be because of the fact that it's not a minor mistake that we made. It is a major issue. It is a terrible offense to not love the Son of God, the One who died for us. And if the truth is known, if the truth is known, there are some even here today and seated in churches all across this country that are guilty of this very crime. In spite of all of the good things, so called good things, that could be said about them, they stand condemned in the sight of God simply because they do not love God. Let, let, let's go back to the demands of discipleship. Let's again think about what love really is. And, and you see, whenever we look at what love really is and we examine our lives or the lives of others, sometimes we can only come to the conclusion there's no love there. There's no love because there's no evidence whatsoever. And you know, you listen, you can hate, you can curse, you can deny... You can ignore God and not be punished for it by the government, the highest power in the land. You can get by with that. In fact, they look—they might even give you a prize for that. There are some up there in Congress, you know, that feel just like you do. They hate God. They deny God. They curse God. They reject God. And so it's no big deal to them if, if you feel the same way. That's just fine with them. But please understand, you're not going to get by with it because even though you don't have to answer to the government, you've got to answer to God. Even though you haven't violated the laws of the land, you have violated the highest law in the universe. So regardless of what others say about you, regardless of how popular you might be or how well-liked you might be, regardless of how much good you do to others in this world, if your love for the Lord is lacking then judgment is coming. And so that's that's the sentence for the sin. That we are either devoted to Him or destroyed by Him. But notice the next word, because here we see the summons. Some folks got the idea, well, you know, I don't care anything about God and I'm doing well. Well, you know, I make a big salary, I'm in good health, I've got a lot of friends, and life's good for me. No problem for me. Well, as O.R.G. Lee used to preach, there's a payday someday. And there's coming a time when you're going to be summoned. Now, this next word actually and literally forms a separate sentence all to itself. Notice the next word is maranatha. That simply means that the Lord comes or the Lord is coming. And that's a fact that is declared throughout the Bible, that the Lord is going to come again over in Jude, just one chapter. But I want you to notice what he says in verse number 14 and verse number 15 about the coming of the Lord. And he takes us all the way back to Enoch in the Old Testament. And it says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh, notice, with ten thousands of his saints. Now notice this next statement. To execute judgment. Upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. See, the Bible declares that He is coming again, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. The sin is that you don't love God, and the sentence is that the judgment of God is going to fall upon you, and you're going to be destroyed, and the summons is that the Lord is coming again. Remember the first time He came, He came as the meek and lowly Jesus to die on the cross. He came to redeem. But the next time He comes, He comes as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. And this time He comes to reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Bible says, Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Amen? Amen? You can reject Him now, but the time is coming you will admit before the universe that you were wrong in your attitude about Christ. And if you're here today and you are unsaved, you have every reason to be fearful. Keep this in mind, Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to professing Christians. And so it's obvious that Paul does not assume that all of them are saved. And if you look over in Second Corinthians chapter number 13, chapter 12, well, chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves... He didn't say examine those that you stand in doubt of because, you know, that's what we're all tempted to do. We hear a sermon like this and we think about the demands of discipleship, the evidence of love. We think about how awful it is to not love God. And automatically, Satan begins to put the names of people in our mind. And automatically, we begin to think about their shortcomings, right? Right? Well, I guess, you know, that uh, really uh, settles it. Oh, so-and-so, they're not saved. Did you hear what Brother Stone said? He mentioned all of the evidences of love and they don't have them. Look, you need to stop trying to judge your neighbor and start judging yourself. That's what he says here. Examine yourselves. What are we looking for, Paul? Notice he says, whether ye be in the faith and prove your own selves, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So Paul is writing to professing Christians, and here he tells them, you need to examine yourself. So what are they looking for? Well, they're looking to see whether or not they actually, truly, really do love God. Because if they don't, judgment is going to to fall. You know the sad thing is there's so many people that are confused. You could just stop nearly anyone out on the street and ask them, What do you think about Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And just about everybody would say, Oh yeah, I, I, I love Jesus. But the problem is that when they talk about loving Jesus, they're talking about loving Him in the same sense that people talk about loving music. You've heard people say, oh, I just love country music, or I love this music or that music, right? They listen to it all of the time. I love music. Or, or maybe it's I love food. I, you know, I've been there, done that. I mean, I, you know, I... I I do I enjoy I in a sense love to eat good food I mean who wouldn't enjoy a good meal, so we talk about loving food or loving music or some would talk about loving football oh I just love football you know I just love the Texans or I love the Cowboys or whoever it is you love football but someone says I don't care anything about football but man I love fishing i tell you, I could fish every day. I just love fishing, you see. And so when it comes to Jesus, they talk about loving Jesus in the same sense that they love these things. And that's not, that's not the kind of love that saves anybody. That's not the evidence of truly loving God. You see, salvation comes by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but it produces automatically love as the Spirit of God sheds abroad the love of God in our heart. In other words, the natural result of me receiving or trusting the Lord Jesus Christ is that I began to love Him. Saving faith is always results in a love for Christ. It's impossible for you to have saving faith and to not have any love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, have you trusted Him? Do you love Him? When the Bible speaks about the coming of the Lord, I'm getting ready to prepare something for for the song that Eric and Lisa sang about the pale horse rider. And there's a recording, and I'm going to have just a little segment right in the front of it to introduce it from... Revelation chapter number 6 and talks about the pale horse rider coming on the scene and the judgment and how we need to be ready for that. And whenever we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us that are believers, the Bible says it is our blessed hope. That's what we're looking forward to I mean, we look, we just can't wait for that day. That's why John, when he closed out the book of Revelation, he said, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's the day that we're looking for. That's when all of our hopes are going to be fulfilled. That's what it is to the believer, but that's not what it is for the unbeliever. For you and I, those who know Christ as our Savior, it is our greatest dream. But for them... It's their worst nightmare. For us, it means deliverance. For them, it results in destruction. When Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he talked about the coming of the Lord, of what we call the rapture, and. He spoke about the fact those that have heard the gospel and rejected the gospel, when Christ comes, because you've heard some people say, oh well, you know, when the Lord comes, I'm going to remember what Brother Stone said and, you know, and I'll realize I was wrong and I'll get saved. No, you won't. The Bible says God's going to send you a strong delusion and you'll believe the lie of the Antichrist. Amen. I mean, the door of opportunity is open right now, but it's going to be shut when the Lord comes, and seven horrible years of tribulation is going to take place here upon this earth before your final judgment day when you stand before the Lord, not to determine whether you go to heaven or not. That's already determined. Because the Bible says we're condemned already if we believe not. The condemnation is already set in stone. That's not going to change. It's simply to determine the degree of the punishment that you'll suffer in hell. But for us, it's the blessed hope. For you, it's the most horrible, terrible thing you can imagine. It's delightful for us, but it's dreadful for you. It results in our ultimate, final redemption. Paul said at the Present, we, the whole creation, groaneth, waiting for the adoption to wit, even the redemption of our bodies. Oh, we long for that day when we'll have a glorified body like unto that of the Son of God. Amen. Free from all of the heartache and the pain and the suffering and all of the tears and everything that troubles us so much here. But for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, it'll be destruction for the one who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer for all of eternity. Listen, if there's no love for Christ, there's no life in Christ. If you don't love Him, you don't have to go out here and murder someone. You don't have to rob a bank. You don't have to do any of those awful things that we've already thought about in order to go to hell All you've got to do is just not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that settles it. Because you are without life and you are without any hope for the future. Peter said, Whom having not seen, ye love. None of us have ever seen the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'll tell you the day that I realized that God's Word is true and that He loved me and that while I was yet a sinner and He loved me so much that He gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross, since that day I fell in love with Him and that's the day I'm longing for. reminds me of the story of the woman who many years ago, she always wore a locket around her, her neck, one of those little lockets that would open up and she never would let anyone look inside. Somebody thought maybe she got a secret admirer or something like that. They didn't have any idea, but she, she got gravely ill. And finally, one of her closest friends, thinking that she was maybe about to die, she showed her what was in that little locket. And it so happened to be the words there found in 1 Peter 1, 8, whom having not seen, I love. Amen. We haven't seen Him, but we love Him. And it makes all of the difference for all of eternity. But the question is today, do you or do you not love the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no question about His love for you. He proved that on Calvary. He loves you and He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance God wants to save you. God will save you. But without you receiving His Son, without you trusting Him, loving Him, there's no salvation. Do you love Him truly? Is there evidence that you really love the Lord? If not, you need to do something about that today. Isn't it wonderful to be in love I mean, you know, it's wonderful to be in love with, you know, your wife or your husband or your children, to just love somebody. But when you think about loving God, that just staggers the imagination that that we love God. And the only reason we do is because He first loved us. We'd never love Him if it wasn't for that. God proved His love for you on the cross Will you receive His sacrifice for your sins and trust Him to save you today? While we stand together, just before we sing, let's pray. Father, we thank You for loving us, realizing how unworthy we are, understanding how filthy and vile and sinful we are, and to think about the fact that that You love us still, and You loved us so much that You gave Your only begotten Son And how grateful we are that You didn't ask us to climb the highest mountain or to swim the widest sea. You didn't ask us to give a certain sum of money or to do good deeds. All that's required is that we trust in what You provided. and How thankful we are that eternal life is possible and that You're not only able but willing to save us from the guttermost to the uttermost. And I pray today if there are those here that are strangers to your saving grace and maybe this morning for the first time in their life they've really honestly examined their hearts. They've looked for the evidence that's not there. And the Spirit of God has helped them to see that they don't really truly, honestly love you. And so this morning, I just pray that with all of their heart, they might trust in your saving grace and be born again and leave here today having you as the greatest love of their life. For we beg it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.